Private Lender Podcast, Episode 11. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Benjamin Franklin, who said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Hello, Lender Nation, and welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, Episode 11. I'm your host, Keith Baker, and thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share with you today's interview with Kevin Bupp, but before I do, I'd like to thank the Private Lender Podcast sponsors. If you go to privatelenderpodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab, you'll see two links, one for 713 Houston Area Real Estate Networking. It meets on the second Wednesday of every month, at the Holiday Inn Express and Suites at 125 Airtex Drive. So that's up in North Houston at I-45 and West Airtex. The other sponsor is the Realty Investment Club of Houston, also known as the Rich Club. I've been a member of the Rich Club for many, many years and taught classes on private lending. I volunteered and served on the board of directors for a couple of years. And I still remain friends with a lot of people in the Rich Club and still do deals. I do a lot of lending to members of the Rich Club. And on Saturday, April 7th, I will be at the main event and trade show, the big the big meeting every month, the first Saturday of every month at the Rich Club. And we'll be discussing funding your real estate from using conventional institutional financing from banks and credit unions to private money private money lenders, other people's money, and also hard money. So come on out April 7th to, what's the address? 1001 West Loop South, Suite 550, Houston, Texas, 77027. That's in the Galleria area right on 610. And Buffalo Bayou, right on it. So come on out uh, the first Saturday and also come out to 713 Houston Meetup this Wednesday, March 14th from 6 to 10 at the Holiday Inn and Suites on West Air Tex and 45. So if you're in the neighborhood, why don't you stop by one of those meetings and let me know what you think of the podcast. Say hello or t- tell me how bad I am. Either way, please come on out. I'd love to see uh, the listeners if you're going to be in the Houston area. If not, uh, don't worry. I'm going to try to get to other places in the country and ultimately the world. Kind of like pinking the brain, looking for some world domination as far as private lending. But baby steps first. So for now, I'm, I'm just in the Houston area and looking to expand into uh, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, and then to go out of state. And speaking of out of state, today's interview with Kevin Bupp it was a, a great milestone for me personally because this was my first interstate edit, I mean interstate interview that I did. Uh, Kevin's in Clearwater, Florida, so and he, he also has a podcast, so he sounds really, really good. And, um, yeah, I'm just going to jump right into the interview with Kevin. There's a lot of good stuff uh, that, that he shares, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So let's go with Kevin Bupp. We are honored today to have Kevin Bupp on the show as our guest. Kevin is the CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors in Clearwater, Florida. He's a serial lifelong entrepreneur used to own a, a mortgage lending company and now dedicates, I guess, most of his time to uh, exercising, doing charitable causes, and buying up as many mobile home parks as he can in his neck of the woods. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, and thank you for uh, sharing your most valuable asset with us today, your time. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, Keith. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks for having me as a guest. Okay, I um, kind of gave you a quick little intro there but take us back i know you had a paper route when you were like 12 <laughs> i did yeah so you're you're a lifelong entrepreneur you know um i say risk taker but not like you know a mitigated or measured risk taker you've you know several businesses uh, you've been involved with throughout the years so kind of just kind of walk us through from 
you know, that first bit of, uh, I guess that aha, uh, the entrepreneur when you're a young boy all the way up to, uh, to today. Yeah. I don't know if the, um, you know, the paper op thing, I don't know if that was necessarily entrepreneurial for, for me, it was just a, it was a way to legally get a job at age of 12, you know, to have a, to, to, to be a, um, you know, work at a grocery store or, you know, work in a restaurant. Uh, I think you had to be 14 or 15 was kind of the minimum age, at least, uh, in, the, in, in Pennsylvania. I don't know if that was a, um, <clears throat> actual federal law or if it's statewide law, I'm not sure. But either way, having a paper route was like the, uh, the youngest that I could truly start making my own money other than, you know, mowing lawns, which I did, you know, we did chores around the house and mowed neighbors lawns and, you know, uh, shovel driveways and things of that age. So did whatever we could at a young age, my brother and I, um, to, to make a buck, right. To make an extra buck. But the paper route was really my first job. And so not, not really entrepreneurial, but it taught me, taught me responsibility, um, taught me structure. I mean, it literally was a seven day a week job. I mean, I delivered uh, newspapers, you know, Monday through Saturday, which was like the daily newspaper. And then the big Sunday paper, which, you know, took a lot of effort, had to like put sections together and it came, you know, various days throughout the week. And, and, um, you know, it was, it was a good job. I made good money. Um, but obviously it was, it was short, it was short lived. There was obviously other things that came along the way, but really I'd say my first entrepreneurial journey as a kid was, I was very intrigued by electronics and, uh, and stereo systems. And so I had a brother who was six years older than I, and uh, he always, you know, he was obviously the older, cooler brother. And, um, you know, he was obviously driving when I was, uh, you know, 10 years old. I mean, he was 16 at that time. And so I was always intrigued by stereo systems, you know, like loud stereo systems uh, back <laughs> when you're like teenagers. And uh, my, my father was always in electronics. And so um, you know, he basically taught me how to install car stereos, uh, build speaker boxes and all that kind of stuff. So that was actually my first real entrepreneurial journey. I used to do that for my brother's friends. Uh, before I was even old enough to drive, I was basically installing their, you know, back then was cassette decks, um, you know, and then it uh, morphed into CD players, which are outdated still today. But, uh, <laughs> right. um, uh, but I saw amplifiers and things of that age. So that was really my first entrepreneurial journey, just making money on the side, uh, my parents' garage, uh, installing car stereo systems. Um, and then just, you know, moved on through high school, uh, doing that for, you know, for extra income. And again, this similar things that most people do, cutting grasses, cutting lawns and things like that side jobs. But, um, really my, my first entrepreneurial venture, or I guess the second big entrepreneurial venture was real estate that, you know, getting introduced to real estate. And that was shortly after graduating high school. I was 19 years old when I got introduced to real estate and it was really by accident. I'd like to, I would love to take credit, Keith, and say that um, yeah, I went on this journey of exploring myself and, you know, I, I read a lot of books and I came across real estate and, and just knew that that was the, um, you know, the target for me. And that's not necessarily how it happened, although it, it became a perfect fit, you know. Um, real estate kind of found me through means of, uh, of a girl was dating. Uh, her mom um, was dating this older gentleman. He was like 20 years older than I, and um, he was a local real estate investor. And uh, I I befriended him. He befriended me, however you want to put it. And uh, I found that he was a, you know, a pretty successful local investor. And uh, he essentially, long story short, he took me underneath his wing. You know, he introduced me to real estate, introduced me to what it was he was doing. And um, probably saw a struggling, you know, 19-year-old in front of him, you know, wondering what I was going to do with my life because I just didn't know I was going to community college. And, and uh, he took me underneath his wing and essentially showed me the ropes. I mean, really, um, was my mentor for a year uh, before I went out and did it on my own. So that was really my introduction into real estate. And uh, that's really what I've done, um, you know, for the last 18 years. I've had other businesses along the way. As you mentioned, I had a more, pretty, pretty big successful mortgage company, a few other um, uh, entrepreneur endeavors as well. But really my core has always been real estate um, in different forms over the years, but it's always been real. It, it's always come back to real estate. That I just, I can't get over the fact that you were 19 when you got into it because when I was 19, I, all I wanted to do was drop out of community college. Move. <laughs> I wanted to move to Toronto and become a rush, a rush roadie and, you know, put together Neil Peart's drums as he toured. That oh, was, that's awesome. That was my goal in life. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen. I, I am pretty happy with my, <laughs> my life, but I, I, I love, I love that story that you were 19. You had the wherewithal to, you know, uh, I guess, I mean, like yeah. it took you under your, his his wing, but you, I mean, you stuck to it. You had a, enough foresight to say, "Hey, there's something here." Uh, I don't I don't know a lot a whole lot of 19s. Maybe I'm just you know prejudiced on my on my own experience, but that um, 
I mean, going from, you know, putting in kickers in Rockford Fosgates to, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right. That's a, that's a heck yeah. of a story. Yeah, I mean, I was tending, tending bar uh, part-time, so I was having fun. I was, it was a fun 19. I was uh, you know, having fun in my, my, in my you know, 19 and 20-year-old ages. But, uh, you know, I basically tended bar uh, part-time and went to community college. And um, in my free time, basically, you know, depending on what my classes were, and, you know, in the evenings is normally when I worked my, my bar schedule. And so – uh, the other times, my free times, man, I was literally, David worked out of his home office. So I was either at his home office with him, just doing whatever he needed me to do. Or I was like on site at one of his rental properties. I was helping him uh, update leases, you know, uh, deal with vendors, contractors, whatever it might be. And basically I was, I was his sidekick, you know, tell me what to do. Tell me what you need help with. I'm here for you. I just, I just want to, I want to soak it all up and I want to be a sponge. And, um, it was just, it was really interesting to me. You know, I, again, I didn't read a bunch of books prior to meeting him. I did. As soon as I met him, he introduced me to really, really self-improvement. He was a guy that introduced me to self-improvement and, uh, he had a whole library of books and, uh, and cassette tapes. Again, back then it was, you get like, you know, 16 cassette tapes, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Zig Ziglar had, he had all the Zig Ziglar cassette tape sets and all that. And, uh, he introduced me to that. And it was just, uh, it was awesome. I loved every minute of it. And I just soaked as much up as I could. And he was predominantly single family residents. Was his he was single family, a small multifamily. Yeah. Small, so okay. um, I think that maybe the biggest property he had was like an eight unit property. So okay. uh, you know, m- mostly small um, duplex. I'd say majority of his portfolio was single family rentals, but he was always, the one thing he did teach me, um, which I didn't know any better, uh, you know, and, and so his model was long-term holds. Everything he bought, he bought with the intent of building cash flow. He wanted to live off of his rental income. And so he never bought with the intent of fixing up and flipping for a quick profit or, or wholesaling. Although he did both, um, his primary business was, hey, this is a great opportunity. It's in a great school district. Um, you know, basically where I could pick it up at after I put, you know, all the rehab costs into, into play, um, you know, my ROI will be X. And uh, he was always looking for double digit returns. And uh, again, he was looking to live on that cash flow. I mean, that, that was his life. He didn't have another job he had at some point in his life, but he, he basically built this portfolio to live on. And um, so that's just really, that always stuck deep inside of me is, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, at any point in time, he could go take a two or three week trip and um, his portfolio would continue to produce for him. And so he wasn't always forced to be looking for that next deal. You know, at least at the point in time when I met him, he wasn't forced to, if he wanted to take a year and not buy any more real estate, he would be fine. I mean, he, he would make enough income to support his lifestyle. Uh, whereas those that are out there fixing and flipping nonstop, they have to fix and flip the next deal. They have to continually move forward and do more deals. And, and essentially, they bought themselves a job, whereas for him, it was an investment. That's key, too. That's, I like that distinction that you just made there. It's an investment, not a job. That's cool. Yeah. So you get, uh, you're in, in, in at 19. I assume, like most, a lot of folks, you, you do kind of go the single family route. Uh, for a while and start spreading rings a little a little broader maybe uh, some some multifamily and um, I know now you are almost exclusive or are you exclusive in the mobile home park space? I still own a few single family properties not by choice um, and, and but I, I, I guess not I by choice <laughs> not by choice not by choice yeah there's still a few homes that I own with some other old partnerships that just uh, okay I don't really pay attention to them they're just there and uh, you know they have renters in them and um, you know, we always make a joke that they'll be like, uh, we'll have a big party like 20 years from now and they're paid off, you know, <laughs> um, in any event. Yeah. Mobile home parks is our, is our core focus. Um, you know, we really, us being entrepreneurs, all my, myself, my partners, you know, we're always, we, we have that built in habit. Even you, Keith, you have the habit of chasing that shiny object. Right. And, uh, I learned many, many years ago, that that was, was a good thing, but also a bad thing, right? And uh, because of f- focus is very important. If you really want to uh, become an expert at something, whatever it might be, you know, whether it's business or sport or anything else in life, I mean, you gotta stay the you gotta stay the course and stay focused on it and, and put the time in. And so that's what that this is what I committed to um, about five years ago, and uh, this is all we have done for the last five years is, is focus on mobile home parks. Nice. I like that. Yeah. I, the shiny object syndrome. Yeah. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It drives her crazy. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So how did, um, I'm curious, um, how did you get into mobile? Like what was uh, the mobile home parks? What was the uh, kind of deciding factor? Like you said, okay, that's what I'm going to focus on. Uh, What were the reasons behind that? 
again, by accident, I guess you all, you know, the, the, our job is to really, you know, let's talk about networking. Cause I feel like your, your network is your net worth. I mean, really getting out there and, and, and expanding your, your network. And, um, you know, I, I'm always in a, uh, in a phase of learning. Like I want to meet new people. I want to learn new things all the time. And so uh, after 2008, 2008 hit me really, really hard. And uh, up to 2008, I focused solely on single family and multifamily property, uh, not mobile home parks, but apartment, smaller apartment complexes and single family. That was the core focus. Again, I liked focusing and that was my focus at that point in time. 2008 hit really hard. Um, I did take two, uh, two year, two and a half year hiatus from real estate um, completely after 2008 occurred. Um, just honestly, I really just didn't, I didn't want to think about real estate at, at that point. It was a really rough time in my life. And so I focused my energy on a few other um, businesses non-related to real estate. Uh, but after a while, I just, I realized that there was this burning desire to, to jump back in and to, um, really rebuild what I, you know, what I lost. I mean, rebuild this empire. I mean, I was young, I was making really good money and it was great until it wasn't there anymore. Right. It was great until it wasn't great anymore. And so I wanted to rebuild. I knew I could do it with real estate and I, I just had this burning passion for it. And so I went on this journey of just talking to everyone that I could. This is like late 2010, early 2011. That was still in real estate, but more so in apartments. Cause I knew that I wanted to do it with multifamily. Single family just doesn't it, to me, it's not as scalable. You know, the amount of energy and effort that you have to put into buying one great single family home deal, it's really the same effort that goes into buying a 100 unit apartment complex. It might not be apples to apples, but your, the scalability of buying multi units underneath one roof uh, or on one parcel of land um, is a better use of your time, at least to me, than it is trying to go out and buy 100 single family properties. Okay. Uh, people argue that point, but I've got my opinion. They got theirs. I like multifamily. So I went on this journey um, with the intent of speaking to everyone that was still investing in apartments, but not, not who just started investing, you know, post recession because those are different type investors, right? Those are, those are the new investors. Um, I also want to talk to those that made it through the recession that made it through the downturn and we're still in the business because the landscape had completely changed in 2010, 2011, as far as lending was concerned, as far as distressed assets in the marketplace. And so I just really wanted to know what was different. And as I went through this journey of um, speaking and meeting everyone I could in the business, I got introduced to a gentleman that is, uh, or that was in the manufactured housing space on the finance side. He was, he was in it for like 30 years. His entire career uh, was based around manufactured housing finance. Well, he retired from the bank he worked for, and then he started buying RV parks in Florida. And um, I got introduced to him. His name was Randy Kilgore. And had lunch with him one day and uh, spent about two hours at lunch with him, not really with the intent of uh, learning about his, I mean, I wanted to learn about his business, but I really didn't go into it with an interest saying, oh my God, I've been dying to learn about mobile home parks. <laughs> that wasn't really the intent of the lunch, but I walked away from that lunch saying, there's something to this. Like there, there's something intriguing about this, this niche. And uh, I think that it deserves more focus. And so at that point in time, I kind of committed to learning more about the niche, uh, educating myself and giving myself some time to either prove or disprove the concept. And so um, it took uh, over a year to, to purchase the first property. And, um, you know, here we are today, mobile home parks. That's it. Is, um, that's what we focus in. Prove the concept. It worked. And um, we've been really successful at it. And I've had a lot of fun along the way. And it's lucrative as well, which is always a good thing. So um, mobile home parks became our niche at that point in time. And that's all we've focused on moving forward. Cool. Uh I'm wondering along that path that you, you've, you've come down, uh, when were you introduced to the concept of, of a private lender? Way, way back when, um, I'd say that actually the very first deal I did, the very first single family home I purchased, um, was funded through a private lender who I was introduced to by David, who was my mentor at that time. He was the one that got me into real estate. And so my very first deal was actually a private, a local private lender. Just, uh, I can't even remember what this individual did, how he made his money. Um, all I knew him as was a private lender. He just lent the money he had. I never even figured out where he made his money originally. But, um, so basically my first deal, Keith, it was, was through a private lender. And over the years, um, you know, David helped me establish some relationships locally there in Pennsylvania, but I only stuck around Pennsylvania for about two years uh, and moved down to Florida, which is where I'm based out of today. And, and so I, I um, you know, quickly got dialed into the real estate market down here. And, and um, a lot of the deals that we 
that we find or that we bought over the years, single family and multifamily, uh, smaller multifamily, were private lenders, you know, wealthy individuals that had uh, self-directed IRAs uh, or other sources of funds that would act as a bank. So, I mean, that, that was a big source of our funding for our entire business. And, uh, you know, back then and even today in a different form today, um, but we are still very heavily involved with, uh, with private lenders or private partners. That's, you know, in that movie with Danny DeVito, you know, talk about other people's money. It, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I cringe to reference it, but it's, you know, OPM, you know, it's, yeah, uh, it's a great, great thing. Uh, and so how does it, it buys you leverage, it buys you flexibility, it buys you leverage, it buys you speed. Um, it, it just, it gives you a competitive advantage, uh, being a real estate investor. And it doesn't matter if you're buying single family homes, you're buying apartments or mobile home parks or any other type of real estate, but having access to private funds. I mean, we utilize leverage in our daily business and we have a lot of bank loans and, um, you know, so we use traditional type debt as well, but having access to that private capital, it's a game changer. Uh, again, whether you're buying $40,000 single family homes or $4 million shopping centers, it's, it is an absolute game changer and it needs to be part of your business. Great point. I'll take this out, but that was awesome. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, shoot, now I just, I wanted to thank you and I just lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> So, so with your, <clears throat> so with your mobile home parks, are you syndicating deals? Yes, we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of walk us through that. Like I said, most, I think most of the listeners are a single family, you know, one lender, one property kind of walk us through mm-hmm. 30,000 feet foot view of, of a syndication on one of your parks. Yeah. So I'll try not to get too in the weeds, but um, really there's two different types of syndications. Um, you know, just, I guess again, keep it at 10,000 foot level is there's deal specific syndications and then there's uh, uh, blind pool syndications. Uh, deal specific uh, is what I, is what it sounds like. It's one deal. You're raising capital for one particular deal, whereas a blind pool would be that we're raising capital for multiple deals. Uh, those multiple deals could be of the same asset type, so they could all be mobile home parks. Uh, it could be a mixture of mobile home, uh, apartment complexes, shopping centers. I mean, it could be a mixture of all of the above. Um, we, uh, we recently, last March, uh, March of 2017, we launched our first blind pool fund uh, for mobile home parks specifically. So no other asset types in there, just for mobile home parks. And uh, we essentially bring on uh, accredited investors. Uh, they are passive limited partners. Uh, so they're not actively involved in the daily management of these parks or the acquisition side or anything like that, but they essentially are, they are a majority of our funding, um, uh, as far as the equity side of things. And uh, in exchange for that, they get a, uh, an ownership in our deal and also sharing the distributions as well. So they basically, they share in all the benefits of real estate, of owning real estate and investing in real estate, but they're not doing any of the heavy lifting other than writing a check, you know, opening up their pocketbook essentially. So, um, that's what we do. Um, you know, it's, I'll, I'll give you the basic structure of it. Again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, sure. um, but essentially our, our, our syndication is pretty straightforward. We pay an 8% preferred return to our limited partners and the equity split is 60-40. 60% to our limited partners and 40% to us, which are the general partners, so to our company. And, um, uh, you know, there's some asset management fees in there and things of that nature. But that's the that's a general overview of what it looks like for our investors that are partnered with us. I mean, really, they're partners more than anything. I, I wouldn't call them private lenders, per se, because uh, they really are. We create a security and uh, we sell them uh, the security to be, you know, literally a part of these deals with us. And uh, they're passive. Again, they don't have any active involvement, but um, they are literally partners with us from the beginning all the way to the end. Uh, so they are along for the ride all the way until we uh, divest of these assets that we purchased together. Nice. A couple of things I just want to, I want to touch on. So this is a, a different concept than uh, you buying a single family house. I'm going to loan you 40 grand and you're going to give me a first position lien. Sure. These, like you said, this is, these are limited partnerships. So the money that is being the private, in this case, the private lender is investing is going to purchase a, a piece of an entity that is going to buy the mobile. That's correct. And That's so correct. Rather yes. than having a first position lien at the county courthouse, you're on the legal documents of the entity, the limited partnership. That's it. And that for whatever percentage that they, they come in at. And also the uh, accredited of investor, I know that's a, a kind of a catchphrase. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got a, that's the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission stipulates that someone who's an accredited investor is savvy enough to either have a, a net worth of a million dollars excluding their homestead 
or mm-hmm. make, uh, is it 300, 200,000 a year individual, 300 married or something? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. You got it right. Yes. Yep. So basically people with, you got to have some money and some savvy to, mm-hmm. to get into the, like your, your, your blind pool fund. Yeah. They figured if you, if you, I guess if you're, if, if you've been astute enough to, you know, build up a million dollar higher net worth with your investments, you know, not, you know, excluding your primary residence, um, or make that kind of income. So you're, you're a high wage earner that you're sophisticated enough to make decisions for yourself and you don't really need the government get involved in that decision. <laughs> that's essentially what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We both laugh at that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I, I, mean, I can honestly say I'm not, I'm not accredited yet. I'm getting close, but I'm not there yet. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, that is something to, for you know, listeners to know if they, Oh, I want to jump in Kevin's fund. Well, not, not so quick um, on, on that side, but, uh, now that's just our pool. fund though. So just, there are other what? funds out there. There are other um, avenues, you, you, right. Yeah. You don't have to be accredited. So there, there's, there's different types of structures out there where you might not have, might not have to be accredited to get involved in one of these syndications as a limited partner or passive investor. Right. But, but that's, that's more for the blind pool. Your deal specific uh, syndications. Well, no, either or, one. Oh, either yeah, one. Either, either okay. one. Yeah. Yeah. Either one. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Cause I knew there were, there were some limitations. I, um, some funds you can allow up to $5,000 from non-accredited the investors are, um, but it, like, again, like I said, there's, there's other vehicles and other ways to, to, I guess, uh, make that cookie crumble. Yeah. And I've actually, I've interviewed a few um, very prominent securities attorneys on my, on my real estate podcast a few different times. And I don't know the exact episodes, but I think Gene Trowbridge, I interviewed Amy Wan and uh, can't think of the other gentleman that I had, but um, we actually go through some of the more specific, uh, uh, you know, I guess, Reg D structures that are out there regarding accredited versus non-accredited, when you can have one, when you can't have the other, and all the different caveats that go along with each one. So if anyone has an interest, they can go back and, and, and seek those out on my podcast. Uh, what's the name of your podcast? Uh, Real Estate Investing for cash flow. And just as a side note, the reason why you're listening or the, the audience is listening to the Private Lender Podcast is because of Real Estate Investing for cash flow. I, I got turned on to Kevin's podcast a, a while ago and... Um, if you can't see, I'm geeking out over here still talking to you right now. <laughs> so yeah, but it's, it's a great resource uh, for, I think, okay, not, not so much single family. You will touch on single family, but more of that kind of um, elevated level of sophistication, I think. But you, you keep it pretty- It's mostly commercial. Yeah. You know, and commercial can mean many different things. Again, apartment complexes- mobile home parks, shopping centers. I've had a couple of um, car wash guys on there recently, which is pretty cool. That's a very interesting business. Very lucrative if you do it right. Yeah. Self-storage, uh, office buildings, uh, um, assisted living. I mean, you know, it goes, list goes on and on. But what we try to stay away from, Keith, nothing wrong with it. So no offense to you guys. We try to stay away from single family and only because there's 50 other podcasts out there that speak about single family investing. So absolutely. Um, and, and it's not really our niche either. You know, our niche is on the commercial side. And I think a lot of people, you know, start out with single family because it's, it's, you know, it's the old adage, invest in what you know. Well, everyone lives somewhere, right? Everyone's probably going to grow up in a house at some point, whether it was owned or rented. And to me, it's kind of the same thing. You get into mm-hmm. it, you start with single family, and then, you know, you want to move on up. Uh, yeah. Or some people. I mean, I know, I know guys here in Houston that, you know, they they're happy with what they do. I, I know a guy. I agree with you. All he wants yeah. is empty lots. He goes, I don't like people. I'm like, well, you're near, <laughs> you don't like people. You're in the wrong business. But he uh, and another guy who does the, he, uh, he's an empty lot specialist as well, and he's you know made a killing. So. Um, you know, to each his own, definitely. But I, I like how there's you- a thousand and one different ways to make money in real estate. And that's yeah. why it's, you know, I, I think the important thing, Keith, is just and figuring out what it is you actually have an interest in and just focusing on it, becoming the expert. And whether it's buying vacant lots or vacant land, parcels of land or uh, mobile home parks or single family flips or single family wholesales, whatever it is, just pick one, you know, get really good at it and make some darn money. <laughs> That's yeah. what it comes down to. Absolutely. I agree. Niche down and be the big fish in the small yep. pond. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's why I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a horrible landlord. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my first flip was a, you know, it was, I guess the, is a house hack. It took me eight years plus a flood. Thank you. National insurance flood program or national flood insurance program that they, they paid to uh, upgrade my house. So, uh, but it took a while and, but lending is, um, you know, I basically failed math you know, through high school and hated numbers and who wants to do finance and lo and behold, <laughs> it, this is what I like. I'm, I love lending money and talking about it. So I couldn't agree with you more, you know, um, find what you want and focus. Yep, absolutely. I'm curious if, if you, if you, uh, willing to share like your worst 
investor mistake you've ever made or where uh, a loan has gone bad for you? Are you yeah, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of a specific deal. I mean, I, I guess I, I, I try to take a high level approach to this, um, not to avoid any specific deals. I, I can't really just think of one off the top of my head that was like a really, really bad deal. But I would say that, and this is, not, again, this is nothing against single family homes. I, it just, it, it isn't. It's just, I, I've got a, a preference and that's, on the multifamily side, but um, I'd mentioned earlier, you know, scalability um, as, as far as the ability to scale and build a large portfolio of single family home versus multifamily, you know, apartment complexes, or you could still classify mobile home parks as multifamily. And um, I'd say if I would have known better, if I, you know, if I would have uh, had some advice from someone like me, you know, giving it to myself back when I was just getting started buying single family homes, I would. I don't know if that was a mistake buying single family because I learned a lot and I made good money and it was a lot of fun. But um, I wish I would have uh, dove into larger properties sooner um, and, and and really focused on multifamily instead of spending so many years on the single family side. So I, I know it's not really an exact answer to your question of like biggest mistake. Um, uh, I guess you know I'm, I'm going to try to answer your question. Uh, a big mistake that that we made. Um, is that we own a lot of real estate here in Florida. And although we are cash flow investors, we were also equally uh, investors that focused on appreciation. Um, and so there was, I, I would say there's probably certain times that we lied to ourselves about our formula of, you know, does this deal make sense from strictly a cash flow perspective? I'm speaking to single family homes back in, you know, 2003, 2004 era. Um, and this is back when Florida was literally appreciating by like, I mean, double digits every year, year in, year out for, I mean, like you, you could literally be a waitress with no, you know, no vocabulary whatsoever and make a hundred thousand dollars flipping a home. And, you know, <laughs> you just, nothing gets waitresses, but I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like you don't yeah. even have to have any experience in real estate whatsoever to make money. And so I'd say the biggest mistake that, that I think um, that we made back then is, is paying too much attention to the appreciation aspect. It looks, it looks great when you start trying to, you know, you run the numbers on what, what are my properties worth today? What are they worth tomorrow? You know, Oh my God, this keeps going. They're going to be worth this much money, but that's all fake money. Like equity really is funny money. I mean, it's monopoly money because you can't spend it until you actually have it. Right. It doesn't do anything on your, um, on, on, on your uh, personal financial statement. That doesn't mean you can't take that to the bank. Right. Uh, and so, not focusing 100% on cash flow and thinking of appreciation as an icing on cake was a big mistake for us. We were cash flow investors, but not like we are today. Today, first and foremost, it is cash flow. It is all cash flow. And we are value add investors. So we like building a, a appreciation in there. We like forcing appreciation by whether it's uh, improving the operations of a property or raising rents or doing infill but it's all icing on the cake. We underwrite the deals on the cash flow that they produce in the return, not what they can be five years from now. And so I don't know if that was enough of a detailed mistake that you were looking for, but I hope that was helpful. Hey, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's helpful because uh, I was just doing a, a recording another episode and I, even if somebody comes to me with a flip, you know, whether it be, uh, and we, I've, you know, houses I've loaned on flip houses on, on small commercial convenience stores, restaurants, mm -hmm. these things. And I always want to know, they say, I'm flipping. Okay. Well, what's the, what's the cash flow? If you have to hold on to it, what's it going to cash flow? That's, yep. that's, that's the starting point because if it'll cash flow, okay. And even if that investor screws it up, you know, does a horrible botches it or whatever contract, you know, how contractors are, you know, leave in the middle of the project and have to get another one and it costs mm -hmm. more. If he has to hold on to that, if my money's going to be tied up a little longer, can that property sustain itself until my loan is, you know, I mean, I'm cashed out, refinanced out or whatever. Uh, the case right. Would be. So I'm glad, I am glad that you mentioned that. And it actually brought, made me think of another question in the commercial realm. Do banks treat mobile home parks different than other commercial assets? You know, it depends on the bank. That, that's actually a really good question. Um, it's probably one of the biggest challenges in our, in our industry. Um, you know, every bank out there and, and, their, and their brother are like throwing silly money at apartment complexes. Like multifamily is like the flavor of the, 
of the of the decade, call it. And well, um, you've heard of Dallas Fort Worth, have you? Okay, yeah, 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 right, right. No, I mean, it pretty much runs rampant across the United States as far as like getting money on a multifamily property. I've seen some really silly loan programs out there, like eighty five percent loan to value, you know, five years interest only, you know, a bunch of cash back at closing for you know improvements, all kinds of stuff like that, which. Um, that just doesn't happen in, uh, in, in mobile home park space. And so what, what you run into in the mobile home park space is that it can sometimes be like the wild, wild west where, you know, we go in certain markets and there's multiple banks that get the concept. They understand the business. They'll underwrite it as an income producing property. Everything is fine. And there's other banks or other markets, literally like the entire market, you go to every bank in that market and they literally view it completely differently. They, they either just don't like it at all. They're like, no way, never a mobile home park. And they really don't have any statistical data to base that on. They're just like, we don't lend on mobile home parks. Or they'll consider it to be raw land, you know, being that these homes are mobile, although they're not really. It takes a lot of money and, and time to move them. It's, it's pretty hard to move them. Um, they, they look at it as like, well, that's just really an, a raw piece of land with some improvements. And it just happens to have some mobile homes on top of it. But they won't view it as a income producing asset and it makes it very challenging to get a loan on something uh, that you know they won't look at the actual income uh, derived from that from from that investment because typically most of the parks that we buy they're worth way more as a mobile home park as an income producing property than they are as raw land uh, we're not speculative buyers so we don't like buy mobile home parks in the middle of a city where it's like on a, on a, on a really popular intersection where there, you know, where there could be a gas station in the future or a shopping center. We're not buying stuff like that. We're buying stuff that's in great markets, but the high, highest and best use today is a mobile home park. And uh, it would never qualify for a loan as just raw land. So to answer your question, um, it's good and bad. It's bad because it's frustrating sometimes. Um, but on the flip side of that, it, I guess it can be good because it keeps some people out of this business, right? It, it creates a barrier to entry, a little bit more of a challenge to get financing. And so with that being said, the, the one cool thing that has come out of it, um, and not on every deal that we've done, but we're pretty good at, at getting it if it's available is the owner financing. So a lot of times uh, we've been able to, um, you know, talk the, the owners that own these properties, assuming they own it free and clear, which a lot of times they do. Uh, we're buying a lot of times from mom and pops that have owned them for, you know, 20, 30 years, sometimes even longer than that. And um, it lends the ability for them to actually carry paper on the property, which is our favorite situation. Like we, I would take owner financing, even if the rate was higher and the terms weren't as great, I would pretty much take it for the most part uh, over traditional debt, um, probably 90, 98% of the time. <laughs> yeah. I, so. I think it's one of the, the great um, wonders of the world, actually. Yeah, yeah, it really <laughs> is. It really, you know, it's, and it's a win-win for both sides. You know, a lot of the owners that we're buying from, again, they've owned it for a long time. They fully depreciate the asset. So they literally have uh, their tax basis is non-existent. And um, for them, it helps them mitigate their capital gains exposure, but it also, it doesn't completely strip away that cash flow that they've grown so accustomed to over the years, right? Like a lot of these people are buying these parks from it. It's their sole source of income or it has become their sole source of income. And so having that just go completely away is a lot of times very challenging. And so it allows them to, you know, essentially continue with ongoing payments, mitigate their capital gains exposure and, um, and really make more money at the end of the deal. You know, I mean, over a, you know, whether it be a, a three or five year span or maybe longer than that, they make more money altogether on the deal from the interest income uh, combined with the, uh, the principal. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really a win win. We, we try to look at each seller, individually it's on a case-by-case -case basis we really try to meet their needs i mean it's what we try to do and in every circumstance where we've actually been able to negotiate owner financing it's really has been a win-win for both sides and uh, both parties are very very happy even years later so good yeah it's it's a, it's a great vehicle I, I know a lot of uh, a lot of people who've, who've purchased their properties with you know the owner financing this some portion of it uh, you know mm -hmm. maybe it's a second lean back or uh, depending on the the, the asset but that's uh, that's really good. You, you mentioned you're you're a value add, so just kind of walk us through what is or value. Sorry, you, you mentioned you're a value add investor. So what typically? I know you know each property is going to be different, but kind of what's the run of the mill uh, add or the value that you're adding to a property once you uh, you acquire it. Yeah, a lot, a lot of times it's uh, operational challenges. You know, uh, the, the expense, operating expense ratio is higher than what it should be. And that could be um, a result of maybe too many people on payroll, maybe the, uh, the on-site manager, because most communities that we own, they have an actual on-site manager that live in the park or live near the park. And so 
they kind of run the day-to-day operation. So, um, you know, that on-site manager, we just, we purchased, I'll give you an example of a park that we just purchased uh, up in, uh, up in New York. Uh, that on-site manager was making, I believe, close to $60,000 a year uh, to run that community. V- very nice community. Um, uh, very low, um, low maintenance, uh, very nice homes, uh, quality residents, uh, mostly older senior citizens pay on time, you know, so very easy day-to-day operation. And, uh, the manager that, that we replaced the, uh, the past manager with is basically making half, which is kind of the industry norm. I mean, probably it's, he works, you know, essentially 20 to 25 hours a week at the most and, uh, makes, I believe about $32,000 a year. So, um, that's a big way for us to shave expenses. So, you know, just really pay someone, you know, what the job entails, not overpay them by double. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> a, a, a good business philosophy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, collections challenges, it's pretty common. We, you know, we buy from a mom and pop, uh, not that deal uh, per se, but it's pretty common to see that if a mom and pop has been running the, the park themselves, they get close with the residents, uh, they start making exceptions, they start giving breaks. And so collections can, I mean, collections can get out of control pretty quickly. You know, you give someone a break once, they stretch it out a little bit, give them a little bit more rope, they take even more, you know. So, you know, we'll go into a park and there'll be, you know, roll, you know, 50,000, 70,000 rolling balances that have accumulated over, you know, could be a number of years even. And there could be a few people in there that just literally are, are, you haven't paid in two months or three months. And so we go in and put a very black and white collections policy in place. Um, and typically how we, how we initiate that is we just wipe the slate clean. We kind of tell everyone like, Hey, Christmas came early. <laughs> um, you know, like just what, what's, what's done is done. That's the past. And, but moving forward, here's what it's going to look like you know, and we're going to give everyone a break. Everyone starts from ground zero. And, um, and it, that typically weeds out pretty quickly those that just aren't able to get on board, you know, and normally there's like one or two that even though you wipe away $6,000 that they owed, they just can't figure out how to make the $300 a month payment. And, um, you know, we let it run its course. And uh, so that, that's another uh, big challenge that we see with mom and pop operators. Um, another one is, uh, Mom and pops typically don't keep their their rents up to market. Uh, they they don't do a good job of, I would say, not necessarily being a professional operator, but just keeping up with the times. You know, you know, keeping uh, yearly incremental increases to make up for inflation, uh, rising costs associated with taxes, insurance, and such. Um, and uh, very common, we'll go into uh, scenarios where the the rents are you know, 20, 30, 40, sometimes even 50 or 60% below what the market is uh, just because the, you know, the operator hadn't raised it or hadn't consistently raised it over the years that they've, they've owned and operated it. So that's, um, you know, that's typically pretty low hanging fruit um, to where we can go in and do a rent bump. Uh, we like to do improvements before we do rent bumps. And we like to go and actually make improvements to the community and, and um, you know, put uh, some capital improvements in place, whether it be redoing roads, putting new signage in, fencing. Um, if there's a lot of uh, older dilapidated units that are in there, we'll go in and clean those up. You know, if we don't own them, we'll go in and spend money cleaning them up. Um, in fact, we just did that in a park up in Florida that we purchased. Uh, we only own six homes in this community. And so the, the remaining, I believe there's about 50, 53 uh, tenant-owned homes in this park. Um, lots of them were older. Lots of them had skirting that was kind of banged up. Uh, lots of them had like rusty roofs on them. Um, lots of elderly senior citizen people on fixed incomes. And so we went in and budgeted, I believe about 50 or $60,000. And we literally cool sealed everyone's roof, um, pressure washed everyone's home, um, fixed their driveway. I mean, just did a lot of improvements to their home uh, just, just to give them a better quality of life and to make the community look better altogether. Um, after we did that, we did raise rent slightly in that park. And, um, but it was, it was, it was well accepted because we, you know, spent so much money on the improvements. We, we brought the, the value and the, uh, the, the overall quality of the park up many, many notches. Absolutely. I mean, you're doing this for units that you don't even own. That's uh, that's, that's a good yeah. strategy. That's, yeah. that's yeah. impressive to say the least. <laughs> wow. I'm wondering if you, if you, you kind of mentioned earlier, you know, if you, uh, I don't remember exactly what you said, but kind of, you know, if you knew then what you know now kind of scenario. Yeah. If someone was to come to you and say, you know, Kevin, I, I'm thinking about doing some private lending. What, what how could you put them off to make sure they get on the right foot? You know, what kind of advice could you give them? I mean, education is really the, uh, the foundation, right? And so, God, in today's world, um, Keith, it's so much easier than, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, 18 years ago. When I, even when I got started back then, when I got started, there were still books and things of that nature, but there wasn't Amazon. You couldn't just go on and like purchase, you know, 
20 books on the, on the topic uh, from all these like experts out in the field. You couldn't, <clears throat> you couldn't get podcasts for free, which is awesome. Right. And uh, there, there, there wasn't just the, the library of, of information, free information out there for, for people to access. So I would say if someone has an interest in private lending, start with the education side, you know, listen to your podcast, listen to other podcasts that are out there on this, on this topic, private lending topic. Um, you know, go meet other private lenders in your local marketplace and have lunch, but take them to lunch, pick their brain. I mean, have some very specific questions, you know, uh, really mind for data, you know, obviously try to give some value to them as well. Don't just extract. You always want to give back as well. Um, but just educate yourself, G get to know the business, determine that you actually have a passion for becoming a private lender. You know, it, you'll find out if it really is the right path you should be taking. The only way you're going to figure that out is by diving in, you know, both feet in the fire, man. And, um, just immerse yourself in information. That would be my suggestion. I mean, there's lots of it out there. Dive in. What are you waiting for? That's uh, yeah. I, I can't agree. I don't think I can agree with you any more than that. That's that's the best way. And and but I really like that passion part of it because if you got to find out quick if you have it or not. Because if you don't, don't waste your time. Move on and get go to something that's else. It. You know. There's a caveat there though. Tons of information. Almost too much information. Like overload. So. Give yourself a deadline of like, you know, okay, for the next four months, I'm going to research, you know, I'm going to learn as much as I can. Um, but by X date, whether it's six months or it's eight months, I'm going to take action, whatever that means to you. Maybe you've got a hundred grand laying around, you want to lend it out. Well, give yourself a deadline to actually <clears throat> learn, but also take action and, and make something happen, right? I mean, don't just, don't just be the guy that has a bunch of theory. Um, and it's like super smart and attending the local investment meetings, but literally has not done a deal yet. You know, get out there and take action. <laughs> we all know those guys. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. Great, great advice. So I, I know in your, your bio on your website, you, okay, I'm going to start this over. First off, what, how, did, how do you say that word that you, that you say you are an autodidact? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Autodidact. Okay. I just enjoy learning. Never, never ending education. Okay. That, and that's how I'm going to, that's, I'm going to take it. So that's, yeah. I'm not going to miss it. I, I, I intuitively, I knew what it meant, but I'm like, how the hell do I say yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> I screw up every time. <laughs> yeah. so, um, well, I know by looking at your bio on your website that you, you enjoy reading. So I, I'd like to know what is on your coffee table or your nightstand right now. What, what, are, what book or books uh, are you going through? So the, the ones that are on my coffee stand night table aren't necessarily the ones that I've read the most recently, which is kind of funny. Um, I, I, I'm guilty as charged. I go through phases, uh, Keith, and I would say that I definitely have not read as many books over this last 12 months than what I typically would read. And so I, um, you know, I drive, I listen to audio. If I have long drives, I shouldn't say when I drive, I listen to audio books, but when I have long drives, extended drives, my off, my house, my office is only like 10 minutes. And so I don't, and most of the time I have kids in my car before I drop them off to come to my office. So I don't really have a chance to, to, to listen to audio books as much as I used to, but, um, to answer your question, I, I get to the point here. Um, uh, Traction uh, is the last book that I read, which is the entrepreneurial operating system. It's just really a, uh, a structured, uh, a structured system, a, a way to systemize your business and, and, and operate more efficiently. So the book is called Traction. That's the most recent book that I read. Um, I'll tell you that a book that I recently reread, which I've probably read two or three times now, is um, and it's it's a phenomenal book. is It's called The Slight Edge, and uh, the name of the author is Jeff Olson, and uh, that's a phenomenal book. That was uh, basically. I think I was turned on to by a good friend about two years ago. So it's a, it's a recent book, but that's, that's a great one as well. And I've got a whole bookshelf here of, you know, things I've read over the years, but um, you know, I, I like to say I try to read at least, I, I wish it was like once a month, but it's probably like four or five books a year now that I try to get through. I wish it was more, um, but that's about where it's at today. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess when you collect mobile home parks, the books kind of get squeezed out a little. Yeah, bit. right. Now, now it's, it, I think it's more like when you have a one and four year old, that you know the time gets squeezed. Out <laughs> oh, <what happens>. yeah. <laughs> understood. Understood. Uh, yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get that. Mine are eight and ten now, so uh, I'm able to do a podcast finally, you know, or have some yeah. time to myself. <laughs> so that's uh, they're a little more self sufficient. Um. So one of the things that I really like about your 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 website, your show, and and really what you shared about your life with us is the way you give back. And I always like to say that you don't need to have money to lend because you can lend time, you can lend compassion, sure. you can lend an ear. So 
I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to give us a little glimpse of how do you give back? Yeah, you know, I, I tried to um, gear my, my 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 charitable endeavors around things I enjoy, you know, like you know, hobbies I enjoy. And um, it just it makes it easy. It's, it's really easy for us all just to write a check, write stroke a check. And I'm, I'm not opposed to that, but um, I also like getting actively involved. And so one of the big things I do each and every year, uh, unfortunately, Hurricane Irm this year had slightly different plans um, for this event that I put on each and every year. But I, I host a, I'm a, I'm a big cyclist. I'm really passionate about cycling. It's one of my hobbies. <clears throat> and so I host a charity bike ride. This year was going to be the, I believe the eighth year um, that we've been putting it on where basically myself, uh, we have a staff of about eight or nine volunteers that help us out each year and uh, 65 other riders uh, ride from the west coast of Florida, uh, Fort Myers Beach, <clears throat> all the way down the Key West. It's uh, 280 miles over three days. Um, each one of the riders uh, has a, a fundraising minimum they have to meet. A lot of them exceed it. And basically all the proceeds from this, the, everything, you know, minus the expenses, which are minimal, uh, we donate to the Tiny Hands Foundation, which was founded by a close friend of mine, Rod Cleef. Um, he's a, a good friend that's close by here. He found that foundation about 15 years ago. And so essentially what we do is we uh, provide food baskets and, and, and gifts to local families in need uh, during the holiday season. So right before Christmas, um, we get names of families from the Boys and Girls Club, from local churches, other local organizations, and we deliver them food baskets with essentially turkey and all the fixings for an entire holiday meal along with presents that they can wrap for their children so you know so they can actually have presents underneath that tree uh, come christmas morning so that's one of the big ones i do on a, on a yearly basis we also do a another bike ride in the middle of the year where it's called the uh, the teddy bear brigade kind of same thing it's a charity bike ride we raise um, uh, raise money through uh, registration fees and go out and buy hundreds of teddy bears or thousands of teddy bears and then give them to the local police department so that their patrolmen can you know stash a couple in the trunk and when they ever get into a situation with that that uh, that has a distressed child as part of that um, altercation uh, they can give that teddy bear to that child to help comfort them during that that time of uh, distress so um, that's just a couple of things I do that really those two things are they revolve around cycling uh, or bicycling because I really enjoy that um, and then we try to, my wife and I try to volunteer. My wife's on a bunch of different boards. Um, uh, we, we go paint houses. We do a bunch of other things. So I've just miscellaneous things throughout the year. Those are the two big events that I actually, I kind of head up and I, uh, I organize and manage. Well, how can people find out more information about those events? Yeah. So um, the bike ride, uh, the, I've only got a website for the main bike ride that we do to Key West. It's called um, 72HoursToKeyWest.com. And it's a 7-2. So 72HoursToKeyWest.com. And uh, they can find out more about that. Um, I think we've raised, uh, even this past year, you know, we, we had to cancel the ride this past year due to Hurricane Irma. Um, but we, we still ended up raising, I think, fifteen dollars or $16,000, even though we didn't even put the event on, which is pretty cool. Um, but I think we've raised uh, over, I think, about one hundred fifty or, or more thousand dollars and have fed, I don't know how many families, it's probably about 20,000 families over the past uh, eight years that we've been doing it. So pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, we can see the immediate impact because these are families that are local in our, in our area. I mean, they're in our immediate area. So we get to see the impact that it has on the local families. And it's just, it's a really cool thing. It's a lot of fun. I've met some incredible people and we've helped, you know, some incredible people as well. That's, that's great. And not to make light of it, but being, uh, you know, living in the Houston area, I'm we're well versed in how mother nature can derail things. Mm, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yep. Harvey, Irma and Maria, uh, were the, you know, bam, bam, bam this, this past year. So. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a big whammy this year. Hopefully that means we got like 10 good years of smooth sailing. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I, re I really do. So, well, Kevin, I, um, before we wrap it up, I want to, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on. It means uh, the world that you came on to my podcast and, and, and shared your, your knowledge and, and your time with us today. And before we say goodbye, how can, how can people learn more about you? And it was actually, I jumped ahead on your website, Kevin will two or, or I'm sorry, every Friday, Kevin makes two phone calls to anybody who signs up. And about six months ago, I signed up and Kevin called and just to, to talk shop about real estate or whatever. So I want to make sure that people have that opportunity to, to get in uh, touch with you. So if you could, you know, give the website, your, your social media, um, mm -hmm. because I mean, Kevin is definitely 
it, it's it's so worth the time. I mean, to uh, to take that thirty minute phone call, it was uh, it made my Friday. It, it was oh, I, I was that. I was yeah, elated. No, was it was awesome. great. So uh, so please give us uh, yeah your 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 web and your social yeah. any other contact info. Yeah, so my main website is kevinbupp.com, and uh, as Keith had mentioned, I do. Uh, I used to do four 30-minute four slots on Fridays, uh, but a couple of years ago, I scaled it back to two. But I, I've been doing that now for going on four years, which is, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've spoken with um, tons and tons of cool people, Keith. I mean, over the year, I get to meet individuals like yourself, and it's just, I guess you could say that's another, not, not with you per se, but I mean, other, some of the other folks I've spoken to over time, um, you know, they've got some they're just trying to get into real estate, have questions like I'm trying to do this, that, and the other. So I guess that's another way of giving back. I feel like, uh, you know, that's, that's my time. And I, I love to help others because honestly, I don't, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for David, David coming in my life and literally taking me underneath his wing. So I feel like it's all, um, it's all our God given duty, each, you, you, me, and everyone else listening to the show to help that next person, you know, you know, Figure out what it is you're going to focus on. If you're going to be a private lender, when it, once you become successful at that, you've got that next person that meet, you know, comes to you at a, a local RIA group or reaches out to you and they're asking for help, they're asking for, you know, for you to answer a question or, you know, just give some advice, give it to them. You know, lend a hand, right? Um, Absolutely. Because you honestly don't know who that person is going to be. You know, that, that person, you should just do it because it's the right thing to do. But you also don't realize that some of those people that are reaching out, could be your biggest ally down the road. I mean, they, they really could help you take your business to the next level. And that, that really comes back to your network. You know, your net worth is what your network is. And um, in any event, uh, KevinBupp.com is the, my website. On that website, on the homepage, on the right-hand side, there's a button. I think like three-quarters of the way down, there's a link that says schedule call with Kevin. That'll actually take you to my calendar link, and you can schedule one of those 30-minute slots. I do think it's booked out pretty far. I, don't, I haven't looked at it. I just I make the call every Friday, but I never look to see how far it's booked out. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, the I first time I looked at it, it was like four months booked out. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't sign up right away because, oh, what, what am I going to say? And then once I decided, okay, I'm on a podcast. I'm going to definitely sign up. It was already six <laughs> months out at that point. So, oh gosh, yeah, yeah. it's okay. uh, it's it, it, it is a, I think it's one of the best things, especially, you know, for providing information to people who, you know, are, are looking for a little direction. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's invaluable. I mean, you can't you can't put a price on it. Um, I can tell you honestly, Keith. I mean, some of the people that I've spoken with, um, and I don't, I can't think of specific names, but over the last three years, are now investors with us in our in our fund. I mean, and they reached out to me and maybe not asking for a specific piece of advice, but just to talk shop, you know, like just to, they had their expertise. Maybe it wasn't the same thing I was doing, but that's how I initially met them. They, they, they listened to me through my podcast, but then they reached out to me. We had a phone call um, and then, you know, come time for us to do our, our investment fund. Um, they reached out with an interest and, uh, and I don't know how many there are, but I know there's at least one or two that are in our fund today that are passive investors that I wouldn't say they're a result of that call, but I'm sure that that gave like a personal touch. I mean, it allowed us to actually have a, you know, a person to person conversation. And um, there's so much value in that on both sides, you know, on both sides. Sure. So, yeah, it, it was, yeah, like I said, I, I mean, when the phone rang and it said Clearwater, Florida, I'm like, he wasn't lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, KevinBub.com, that's, that's the main website. You can contact me through there. My email address is Kevin at KevinBub.com. And then uh, if they want to learn more about like, uh, if you go, if, if you want to learn more about like our syndication, I'll give you a little, a little cheat sheet here. If you go to our website, our company website, SunriseCapitalInvestors.com, <clears throat> there's a, uh, a link on the top right. I believe it says investors. If you click on that, that'll take you to our secure investment portal. And if you actually, you can create a free account. If you create a free account, it'll allow you to actually download our private placement memorandum. So if, you, if you're bored and you want to read through like, I think it's like 180 pages and you want to see what an actual syndication documents look like, at least ours, you know, they can vary. Um, they're not all boilerplate. Um, but if you want some good reading material uh, to learn about what it is we do, there you have it. A free way to access that. Great. We'll put that in the show notes so that people can uh, can get over there. Mm -hmm. Kevin, thanks again. I, I really do appreciate it. You've this has been a great episode. I can't wait to start editing and, and get it out there to the world and let everybody listen to it. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you for all that you've you've done for the investing community and, and, and your local community. And I hope to have you again. Uh, I hope to have you on the the podcast again uh, at some point. It's been thanks. awesome, Keith. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Right. Take care. So that's going to do it for this episode 11 of the Private Lender Podcast. I'd like to thank Kevin Bupp for a great interview and dropping value bombs and golden nuggets and everything else. 
I'd also ask that you go to privatelenderpodcast.com slash sponsors and visit the websites for our sponsors, 713 Houston Area Meetup, Networking Meetup, and the Rich Club, Realty Investment Club of Houston at richclub.org. Sorry, you can hear the dog shaking in the background. Anyway, just want to reiterate uh, a few things that Kevin said uh, about getting education. Did I say that right? Getting education? Anyway, but everything starts with education, but also giving back. So I've said before, you don't need money to be a lender. You can lend time, you can lend compassion, and you can lend support. And you can do that for any group or any cause out there, or you can do like Kevin and create events that support uh, particular causes. So I highly recommend everybody go out and try to make the world that they live in a little bit better place, whatever that means to you. Uh, as long as you give back, I think that's a, a wonderful thing. And I'd like to steal from Ryan Stuman of the Hardcore Closer podcast. Now, that Hardcore Closer is a, a sales-oriented podcast that a friend of mine, Chad, introduced me to. And I, I've been listening to it, even though I'm not in a sales position, so to speak, uh, directly, a direct sales position. But Ryan says, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. So I am going to ask if you're listening. You can hear my voice. And this is not your first episode, or even if it is your first episode to listen to, uh, please go to iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts, and please leave a rating and review. And yeah, I would love to have a five-star review and some glowing words, but I'd, I'd rather have an honest opinion to help shape the Private Lender Podcast. So if there's something missing, something lacking, or something I could do better, please let me know, or just drop me a line at info at privatelenderpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you guys on the podcast next week. And until then, I wish you happy lending. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.